Meet Allison. She was dealing with brain fog and was constantly tired and also felt like she was not getting a good night's rest. She was experiencing joint pain and felt much older than her chronological age. Allison saw multiple doctors and they checked her B vitamins, her thyroid, her iron, but everything checked out. They did find that she had a positive ANA, which is anti-nuclear antibodies, but she was told that it could be anything and most likely that it's just nothing. When I met Allison, I rechecked her thyroid because I almost always find underlying issues there that doctors often miss. However, even looking at all the markers and checking them against the optimal ranges, her thyroid function was really okay. However, there are so many other things aside from thyroid that can lead to fatigue and the other symptoms that she was experiencing. And so I knew that we just haven't turned over all of the stones yet. After speaking to her at length, we figured out that her symptoms actually got worse after she moved to her new house. My sense was that it was something in her environment and that possible mold exposure was at the core of her mystery. We needed to figure out if there was mold and if so, the best way to find it and remediate it while supporting her body in the process. Every year, Thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard all about Allison's struggles. Join me on the show today to talk much more about this is Jason Earl, who is an indoor air quality crusader. He's the founder and CEO of 1-800-GOT-MOLD, as well as Mycolab USA, and he's the creator of the Got Mold Test Kit. Jason went from being a Wall Street whiz kid to America's top mold detective and connected the dots in his own health odyssey, implicating a moldy farmhouse that he grew up in. And like many of my guests, Jason's been featured in various publications and media outlets like the Dr. Oz Show, Good Morning America, and Extreme Home Makeover. Jason, I cannot think of a better expert to bring on for this case, so welcome. Thank you, Ina. It's great to be here. So it's not news to most of us that mold exposure is not healthy for us, right? But while we're aware of this, so many of us can be exposed and we don't even know it. And by the time we figure it out, There are various health issues, and they really accumulate over time. And the mold field is really large, and I feel like it's not really well regulated. And so with that comes a lot of confusion, and that's why I'm so excited to dig into everything today so that you can clear this up for us. So when it comes to mold, what is it about mold that's so bad for us? What makes it so toxic and makes us feel so bad? First of all, I think that on a very basic level, mold is essentially the beginning of decay. Our bodies have visceral reactions to uh, things that are decaying and have decayed. And you just think about uh, rotting food, uh, feces, these kinds of things. There's a visceral repulsion to it. And, and I feel uh, that this is just observational, right? This is This is after being in this 20 years, you, you start to think a little bit differently. And I, I believe that that's the primary reason why we have these incredible reactions to it. it is, it's an evolutionary advantage, I would argue, 
potentially that that ultimately it's part of the reason why I also women tend to have a better sense of smell, pick these things up more easily. And that, by the way, that's not just humans. That's also uh, other animals as well. That's one of the reasons why we only used female mold sniffing dogs because they had a better sense of smell. Um, but the that's an evolutionary advantage. And I think I think oftentimes, and by the way, uh, the environmental sensitivities in general are not a weakness, as, as many people feel that they are. Those people who who have them and and people who judge people who have them. I believe that evolutionary uh, that's actually a sixth sense of sorts. Um, that these things are bad for everybody, and it just so happens that if you're sensitive to it, you got the message before they did. And if you listen to that, you can reduce exposure and have a healthier life. Um, and so just because you experience discomfort doesn't mean it's a bad thing. This, uh, people tend to think that pain is bad and, and pleasure is good. Uh, in this particular case, that signal is giving you a very important signal and it's something to listen to. Oh my gosh, I love this. I'm literally getting goosebumps just hearing you say this. It's, you know, my canaries in the coal mine. You know, I say something similar, like your body is telling you and you're actually hearing it, unlike all these other people that have no idea. So yes, I so agree with that. And, f- and further to that point, I don't even look at mold as the enemy. I look at mold as a signal because you get the benefit of a, they, it sends you the musty odor. It sends you the message and it says something's off, something's imbalanced. There's, there's actually look at it. I look at it much like inflammation in the body, where if you don't deal with the underlying cause of inflammation in the body, you'll go from acute inflammation to chronic inflammation, which is actually its own disease. The same thing goes with mold. Mold sends you the signal if you don't listen. In other words, if you don't react quickly. Uh, it will get worse because mold problems do that. That's what they do. They grow. And left unchecked, they grow to, and they will ultimately take over the building. The job of mold is, is, to just, is to take everything that was at one time living and turn it back into dirt. It's doing that very efficiently outside and it's doing its job quite well when it's doing that with leaves and sticks and things like that. If it's doing that to your wallboard <laughs> or your belongings, uh, not so much. I would argue that mold is actually not the enemy. Mold is actually telling you that you've got an imbalance in your building and your building is sick. Um, and when you fix that, the building heals. And guess what happens also then? The people inside it heal too. Right. Now, if mold is not the enemy though, what is it that the mold produces that makes you sick and makes the building sick? Well, the best back up. What is the enemy is actually moisture problems. Moisture is the enemy of a healthy building. Mold is just the byproduct. Mold is the very predictable, uh, natural byproduct of prolonged dampness. That's it. Multiples are everywhere. It, they're just waiting there for the right conditions to be present. Um, and so really, if I could just turn it, flip this, what you really have here, mold, mold is a moisture problem. Mold is not the enemy. Moisture problems are. So that's the first part. Mm-hmm. The second part is that once you have once mold begins to take hold, once the spore is on a surface, has the right conditions to germinate, uh, much like a seed, uh, it will send out shoots called hyphae into the material, release enzymes. It does the digestion outside of the cell. So we digest inside, uh, they, it digests outside, and then extracts the nutrition from that from that from that material. And while it's doing that, it's obviously, you know, building structures to increase its ability to eat more stuff. Uh, And while it does that, it's creating colonies. And while it's digesting, it's producing, to overgeneralize, three different things. Number one, spores, which are the, you know, designed to go forth and prosper, right? Go, go, go find more places to go eat more stuff and do its job. Um, And by the way, we really need that because if you imagine if we just had all the dead stuff outside, we'd have piles and piles of trees. And that's why we have coal and oil and all that stuff, because at one time we didn't have fungi. And that's where that stuff comes from, um, deep within the earth. 
But we need that stuff now. Otherwise, we'd have lots and lots of dead stuff piling up. But the spores are abundant and they're ubiquitous. And they're a very important part of the whole health perspective or the health, health picture because people tend to react in allergenic ways uh, to or in allergic ways to exposure to spores, uh, sinus issues, dermal reactions, itchy eyes, that kind of stuff. So high spore counts can be, can be troubling. Uh, they also can carry mycotoxins, which is the byproduct of mold growth that only certain molds produce under certain circumstances. But mycotoxins get a lot of bad press. Yes. I mean, there's so many tests out there, right, for mycotoxins. And that's one of the main things that people talk about. It's almost all they talk about. I think it's a red herring. I don't think it's a red herring. It is a red herring. Uh, In fact, it's a distraction from the actual issue. Um, It's also, it also completely ignores the fact that only some molds produce mycotoxins and even the ones that do, including Stachybotrys, the notorious black toxic mold, which is, by the way, green, not black. It only produces mycotoxins during stress uh, or high, periods of high competition. And so, um, so we, we build this whole medical approach around detoxing mycotoxins. But what about all the molds that don't produce mycotoxins? That was, this, this philosophy would, would assume that the other molds are benign and nothing could be further from the truth. And so the third thing that molds produce when, when growing, uh, and all molds produce this when they're growing, uh, is the musty smell. And the musty smell, known as microbial volatile organic compounds, or short MVOCs, are getting a lot of, a pre- a lot of attention now, thankfully. I've been talking about this for 20 years because the dogs that we use during inspections uh, are trained to sniff at the source of those microbial VOCs. Um, and so we would go into houses where there would be significant symptoms. People were very sick. We'd take air samples. They may have normal spore counts, uh, but there's a strong musty odor. And, uh, and we do the remediation uh, or the, we oversee the remediation, do the testing at the end. Spore counts still, still seem normal, but the musty smell is gone. Everybody feels better. Um, and, and I saw that happen hundreds of times over the course of 20 years. Uh, and so now the, the research is very clear that the microbial gases, the musty odor, have incredible uh, health consequences. Uh, it's the second leading indicator of, of childhood asthma behind maternal smoking. It increases the risk in, for, for asthma in children by 250%. Just having a baby exposed to the musty odor uh, increases their risk of developing asthma by 250%. There's uh, wonderful research being done by my friend, uh, Dr. Joan Bennett at Rutgers University, who uh, wants to rename the volatile organic compounds associated with mold Instead of MVOC, she wants to call them volatoxins because she's doing research on uh, fruit flies and exposing them to the musty odor. And she's finding that they stop producing dopamine. They, they fly downwards away from the light. They stop reproducing. Uh, they develop Parkinsonian-like symptoms. Um, in essence, they become depressed and they develop cognitive issues, uh, which is a very common complaint for mold sufferers. They blame it on mycotoxins, but I'm here to tell you <laughs> That in my experience, after doing thousands of assessments, uh, all health-driven, many of them referred by their physicians, that the musty odor is pervasive in all of these cases. Toxigenic molds, here and there. Uh, spore counts, sometimes high, sometimes not. Uh, and so, uh, and most of the time, you, you've got kind of got a sweet spot where there's, in chronic dampness, you'll have the toxigenic molds. You'll ten- tend to have enough humidity that you'll have high spore counts and you'll have the musty odor. Uh, and that those people are getting sort of a triple whammy. Yeah. Um, 
And so, but the, but there's really there's a really disproportionate amount of attention uh, directed towards mycotoxins, as if the color of the mold or the type of mold dictates how you handle the mold. And again, nothing could be further from the truth. Mold is a moisture problem. And when you have those kinds of molds that are producing mycotoxins, by the way, that's a sign that you have not listened to the early signals because that's late stage chronic dampness. Wow. So those are, that's the, those are the tertiary colonies. Those are the last guys to show up to the party. That means that you didn't listen when they, when they first showed up. Right. Wow. This is so interesting. And I have to say, I am someone who definitely has a very sensitive nose. So I go in somewhere and if there's even the slightest little bit of a musty smell, I'll smell it. I'm like, do you smell that? And most people are like, no, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, there's something moldy here. I smell it. Like, And this is you know, sometimes in basements, but sometimes it could be just in other people's homes or at restaurants or you know, schools and things like that. And I was always told, well, there's no mold we checked, right? I'm like, but there's a musty smell, right? So they're like, well, the spore count is fine. So this really, really makes so much sense what you're explaining because- it's all of these things and, you know, the musty smell and these volatile compounds that come from that are really, really important and people aren't talking about them. So this is so, so important to know. So my next question then is if let's say someone has an issue where they smell a musty smell, right? And they may have had water damage or maybe they haven't or they don't know, right? If they're moving into a home and they don't know what happened five years ago or 10 years ago, what are the best ways that they can test and find out? Because I know that there's many different testing labs out there. And of course you can have a technician come, but I feel like the field is just, it's such a big field, you know, and people have different training. And so someone can take, like you said, an air sample and say everything is fine, but is it really fine? Is there really a good test? Well, it's a, it's a great question. And it's, it's, it's a, a question that I've heard thousands of times. And, uh, and, you know, we, I, my company is called 1-800-GOT-MOLD and we do mold inspections uh, and remediation consulting. You take tens of thousands of calls over the years and, and one consistent refrain is, that sounds expensive. Is there a test kit on the market? <laughs> um, and so, uh, so if you look at the spectrum of what's out there, uh, you've got basically these $10 Petri dishes at the checkout at the hardware store, uh, which are fundamentally, um, they're, they're basically a sixth grade science fair experiment. They're scientifically invalid. Uh, they're good to, you know, if you want, if you, if you're concerned about mold growth in your home, the first thing you should not do is grow more of it, which is what they encourage you to do. Got it. Makes sense. All Petri dishes will grow mold. That's what they're designed to do. Mold spores are ubiquitous. They will set it out of the air. So, so, that, you know, the presence of spores does not mean that you've got a mold problem. There's a big difference between having mold, which every house does because every surface does mold spores and mold growth or a mold problem where you've got an, a real moisture condition that's causing active growth. Those are very, very different things. So the question about the test kits, the $10 test kits uh, at the checkout, those are those those sort of anchor the darkness, if you will. Um, and people buy hundreds of millions of dollars a year worth of those. It's just, a, it's a terrible waste. And then all the way on the other side, you've got very expensive inspectors, many of whom are capitalizing on this mycotoxin thing. And they will do all sorts of weird tests. They'll, in fact, they'll often use tests that are not recommended, like ERMI. Yes. Oh, I could tell you stories about that. We'll get into that later, but yeah. Bad, bad news. And, and these guys that are charging, some of these guys are charging five or $6,000 for an inspection. And then they're, and then they're handing someone over a hundred thousand dollar remediation proposal. Right. And I've even heard things where people are saying, you know, I, unfortunately I had this happen to a neighbor of mine. They had the ERMI done and they basically were told that everything in their house is bad. And for lack of a better word, they need to basically knock their house down. I mean, they didn't say it in that way, but it was basically like it's everywhere. And by the way, you also have to get rid of everything you own. 
like your clothes, your couches, your everything. It's cra- it's craziness. I've heard this for 20 years. Most of what we've done is we spend time talking people down from the ceiling. Of all of the houses we've gone in, I have only one time said this is not habitable. Now, that doesn't mean I've, I have not recommended that people find alternative living arrangements while the problem is corrected. But to say that a building is uninhabitable is a very different conversation. And to say that all of your belongings are quote-unquote contaminated uh, is to misunderstand contamination. Uh, It's also to misunderstand what remediation is. Remediation is not about killing things. It's not about removing mycotoxins. It's about cleaning. Uh, You remove the building materials that support the fungal growth and you clean the surfaces. If you, mycotoxins are not, are not free, freely floating around. They're little oily substances and that, uh, not little, but they're, yeah, I mean, they're very little, they're measured in nanos, but they're, but they're, they're on dust and they're on spores. And so you clean up the dust and the spores and guess what you've done? You've cleaned up the mycotoxins. Uh, there is no additional treatment needed for that. And, and we can talk more about remediation uh, techniques and why talk about chemicals and all that kind of stuff a little bit later. But on the testing piece, you've got the $10 test kits and you got these six, $7,000 maniacal fear-based inspections. Uh, we, we also have a, you know, our professional inspections are about $1,000 to $1,500 on average. Um, and that includes a full written report. In the middle between that $10 and that $1,500, which is the marketplace, uh, there's, there's a lot of junk science, good scientific idea, poorly applied. And so what, what we've basically uh, looked at is there's two kinds of mold problems you can test for. One of them would be what some people call hidden mold. I'm starting to call it more sequestered. Uh, hidden mold just means that you can't see it. Sequestered for me is it's, it, it's, it's, it's a wet. It, it is literally not part of the same space. So the stuff that would be growing in a wall, that's sequestered or hidden mold. That mold is going to produce VOCs and the musty odor, but not spores. So that's a different kind of test kit. And we actually really like a product made by a company called Home Air Check, or actually Prism Analytical is the company, or now they're named, I think, Enthalpy, E-N-T-H-A-L-P-Y. Um, but the website is homeaircheck.com. And they, they have a VOC test kit that will test for man-made VOCs, which are also a major problem in, in modern buildings as well as microbial VOCs, which are the byproducts of active growth. And a man-made, you're talking about those are things like if people have like varnishes on their floors, right? And things that the wood is treated with and paint. Is that what you mean? Mm -hmm. That's right. Anything that you get from any of the big box stores is going to (laughs) off-gas to some degree, it seems. Mm -hmm. Whether it's furniture, finishes on your your floors, walls, you know, uh, insulation in the walls, unfortunately, many homes is made with formaldehyde. So VOCs, in modern buildings are, are a real problem, especially in America. Uh, Scandinavia, they've, re- they've regulated that for a long time and they don't have that issue. But we just love our fast, cheap stuff and fast, cheap stuff off gases. Um, and it's because of the adhesives and, and plastics and all the stuff, all the packaging even. You know, we're living in a chemical soup. If you saw the number of chemicals that are in your air, you'd be shocked. Um, and, and some of them are really disconcerting. So this test will tell you what your chemical load is in your house. So it's a really useful overall view on the gases and the VOCs in your home. And it differentiates between the regular VOCs and these microbial ones that could be from mold? Yes, it does. And that's, that's, the, that's the best part about that test. And I, I am unaware of any other such test in the industry that does that. That sounds really neat. Yeah, so I recommend them. The other kind of test kit uh, that's out there that's actually valid uses the same professionals. Actually, we make one. Uh, that uses the same devices that professionals use called spore traps. 
And that's looking for a different kind of mold problem. That's the kind of mold problem that's growing on surfaces on the inside of your building. So on exposed surfaces. Now, those exposed surfaces might be underneath the bottom of dresser drawers. It might be underneath furniture, but they're still exposed surfaces within your airspace, if you will. And those mold problems, which are often caused by prolonged periods of elevated humidity, those mold problems, and yet that you'll see that, that, that you'll tend to have visible mold in areas. You know, a, a, a well-experienced, well-trained professional will find those kinds of problems fairly quickly. They tend to be low underneath furniture, on the backsides of dressers and outside corners, cold closets, things like that. That's from just having too much moisture in the air or from having something get wet and stay wet for too long. Those, will, those kinds of mold problems will create high spore counts. Uh, and so you, so you basically are looking at much like COVID testing. There's different kinds of COVID. Every kind of test, really. There's there's different ways to sort of look at the data and and, and gather uh, a perspective from from the methodology you use. And so we like to pair them together uh, because if you if you really want to get a holistic picture of what's going on in your air, you need to look at the gases and the spores or the gases and the particles. And uh, and so I like to suggest that people. Uh, get a spore trap based test kit like ours, uh, which we sell at gotmold.com, and the VOC test kit. And when you have them together, you can quickly see not only if you have a problem, but the type of problem you have. Is this a problem that's hidden in the walls, or is this a problem that's actually growing on the surfaces in my airspace? That's so helpful. I never really thought about it looking from both angles, but that makes so much sense. That's great. And that's really great resources for everyone to have. Then once someone does the test and they see that it comes up for something, either the spores or the microbes or both, what's the next step? Where do they go from there? Unfortunately, we have not yet figured out a way to create a consumer-friendly, low-cost way to do your own remediation and, and or even to do a proper inspection without the, benef- without the benefit of having some professional experience there on site. So even with our test kit, what we recommend is that if there's any alert conditions detected uh, using our kit or any other test kit for that matter, uh, the, the best next step is to hire a professional. And the key element there though, is to hire an independent qualified professional who has specialized experience in mold and mold remediation that does not have a relationship, a financial relationship of any sort or kind with a remediation firm. Of course, you're, you're depending on them to attest to that and be honest about it. But, but that's, that, that is so important. I cannot emphasize that enough. I could certainly understand that because I can definitely see the, the relationship being a problem in a lot of different ways, for sure. So what types of questions can people ask the person that they're potentially looking into to do the inspection just to know that they're they're going to be good. So, you know, we can ask them, as you said, that, that they don't have an affiliation specifically to a remediation company. Is there anything else that we would want to know? Yeah, actually, you know, um, it's funny you should ask that. We know we made a, a, a welcome page on our website for your listeners. And uh, it's at, at gotmold.com slash mysteries solved. And on that page, we have an ebook called How to Find Mold that has a bunch of frequently asked questions and, and, and includes in there uh, how to hire an inspector, what to, what to ask and what to look for. Uh, and so that's a free resource available uh, to, to your listeners. That's great. Yes. And the, we're going to put that landing page in the show notes for everyone to see. Um, and then they could download that. That would be very, very helpful. And then 
once they have the inspector, and as you said, the inspector would not be connected to a remediation person or remediation company, how would they go about that? Because there's lots of companies, and as you mentioned before, some are very on the surface, some kind of go way to the other side and may not be needed. So tell us a little bit about what remediation is and what it isn't, and then how people can find the right person to remediate. Okay. So I'm actually, I, I, this is the first time I've, I've uh, announced this, but we're working on a consumer version of the industry standard. It, right now, it's locked away with the trade association. It's a copyright protected document. And so the consumer can't even get access to it unless they want to pay 75 bucks to buy this, you know, this paper, hefty, very technical guide. And so I think that's probably the underlying reason why there's so much confusion about the subject and why contractors are able to just go rogue and have no consequences because the consumer doesn't know. They're not informed. Uh, and so we're working on, on remedying that through a combination of you know, little guides, pamphlets, and also some explainer videos. In essence, uh, remediation is about removal of mold and its byproducts. It is not about killing mold. Uh, it is not about killing mycotoxins. I love that one. Mycotoxins are not alive, never have been, so you can't kill them. Um, but, uh, but basically, in essence, mold remediation is a controlled interior demolition of affected materials, removal of such, and then a fine cleaning of all of the affected areas in the building um, and then, of course, the most important part is the root word of remediation is remedy. You must fix the underlying moisture problem. And that actually should be done first or at the same time that the cleanup is done. Because if you don't, you know, keep it. This is the really important point is that mold occurs within 24 to 48 hours of a moisture problem that isn't dealt with properly. And according to the industry standard, water damaged material, porous water damaged materials that stay wet for 72 hours or longer are automatically considered moldy and should be removed regardless of whether there's visible mold on, on them or not. And so, so the guidance, the professional guidance, the industry guidance talks about mold problems and reaction to them in, in, in matters of hours and days. Most homeowners or property owners or property managers uh, tend to delay their reaction at least a few days. <laughs> uh, they, they think about it in weeks and months. Oh, I've only had that, it's been that way for a while now. But, the, but it is it moves very, very quickly. And a water damage problem is very cheap to fix, by the way. Mold is very expensive. So the faster you move on that, the less you have to involve you know, significant budget outside contractors. By the way, as soon as it goes from 24 to 48 to 72 hours, you can no longer have your handyman or your local guy, your dad, or, your, or, your, or, or even yourself do it. You, you have to engage a professional to do removal of anything more than 10 square feet. And I even think that's too much. Okay. So if it's right away, yes, you can remove the, the little bit of sheetrock or a little bit of the ceiling, but if it's past 72 hours, then it's really not a DIY type of project. That's right. If you can get wet sheetrock, if you can, if you can get to something within the first day, wet sheetrock, and you don't have the tools to dry it out, which of course most people don't, cut it out. Now, can you just put a fan on it or that's not enough? It, you, you, the thing about water in a wall is if the wall's got insulation in it and that wall uh, insulation got wet, the insulation will never dry. And so it just depends on the dynamic. Again, this is why professionals are necessary. Uh, you know, Finding a qualified remediation contractor is almost as hard as finding a qualified inspector. It's true. And it's again, it's a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's a, there are a lot of mistakes that are made uh, in the industry that are repeated um, by uh, by contractors who just are not there's IICRC certified, but they're not actually following the standard. 
at all. Uh, for example, fogging is not in the standard. It's, it, it's addressed to not do it. It's specifically addressed as a not recommended practice. Um, may I ask why? Only because that's something, and again, I'm not a mold expert. That's why I have you on. But, you know, it's something I definitely hear about. And people sometimes even buy foggers and special solutions. I mean, there's so many things. Some are natural, some are not. But, you know, it, it's such a big thing that people talk about. Can you tell us a little bit more about why that's not recommended? And is it making it worse? Or is it just not making it any better? Well, first, let me tell you why they do it. Okay. The first is they, they use it because it precipitates the particles. So in other words, what it does is it you create this mist and, and there's something called agglomeration where these particles will, will gather together. And by virtue of them getting larger, they be, the, the mass increases and they fall out of the air. So basically, the idea is fogging done well, if, if you can say that, should, should basically clear the air, so to speak, uh, and allow the surfaces to be cleaned. The thing is, is that it, the fundamental misunderstanding or the sort of the flaw in the logic about fogging in the first place is that uh, you have to most of the time there's there are there are antimicrobial components to this fog uh they're, they're trying to kill something the, the fact is is that there is no place when I, I say zero place no place ever for antimicrobials during mold remediation unless you're concerned about bacteria like if there was a sewage leak or you've got you know river water or something like that that has a high nutrient content that could potentially have or could have a lot of microbes in it, those, those circumstances should be treated with sanitizing agents to, to, because of the concern about bacterial infections or viral. Uh, you know, there's, there's other critters in there that you got to worry about. But when it comes to mold, mold remediation doesn't need chemicals. And, 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 I, and I have a very hard time finding contractors that will even listen to this, by the way, even though, by the way, that's also in the industry standard. Wow. So keep in mind that oftentimes when you use chemicals, some of these chemicals have leave a legacy behind. Some of them are hormomodulating. Uh, uh, there are quaternary ammonias, which actually dry out. And there's evidence uh, and research that, that says that once that becomes, once it dries out, becomes dust, becomes airborne, and it lodges in your cells, and it can actually cause hormomodulation and estrogen dysregulation and all sorts of wonderful things like that. Uh, so antimicrobial. So the idea is that you spray a toxin onto something that you don't need to kill, the toxin stays behind. And oftentimes the contractor thinks that they've just killed the mold, so they don't need to remove it. So now you've got a high fungal load and a high chemical load. Congratulations. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Because I guess what you were saying, like if it's making the spores or like the mold kind of fall, you know, because you said that it's going to be larger, right? So it falls down. So they have to almost like clean it up from the floor, right? But they don't. So that's right. And that's the way remediation is done. So the way remediation is done is you, you go in, you identify the areas of water damage, um, you remove, for example, sheetrock, carpet, carpet padding, ceiling tiles, anything that's been damaged uh, or where there's growth, so anything that's staining, and you remove within two feet of, of those materials. Uh, you leave behind structural elements and anything that isn't damaged, uh, and this is all done under containment and negative air pressure, so this is to control the dust. Fungi-laden dust is nasty stuff. Uh, so, of course, everyone doing the work has to wear proper protective equipment because low spore counts before remediation will become very, very high spore counts during remediation as well. And so so all of that uh, work in containment under negative air pressure to control the dust, um, you, you'll then, they'll then do fine cleaning after that. They'll vacuum up everything using HEPA filter vacuum cleaners and wipe everything down. This is where they want to use chemicals and sprays, uh, but they don't need to, just a damp wipe and with a detergent mix. Uh, is very is, is perfectly sufficient. It's elbow grease. This is the, the 
The biggest problem with remediation contractors, they don't want to do the work. They want the pay. They don't want to do the work. They want to spray something or fog something, uh, and they want to have it smell good. They want to paint something. They want to paint a surface so that it looks like it's been treated, uh, all that stuff so that the consumer is happy. But all those things are unnecessary costs. They leave behind a smell. They leave behind a chemical, uh, and they also don't get to the heart of it, which is remove the fungi, remove the mold, vacuum it up, wipe it down. So it's HEPA, wipe HEPA. That's the mold remediation mantra. HEPA, wipe HEPA, and you do that four or five times, and then you do it three more just for for, for uh, good measure, and uh, and you're also running air purifiers, HEPA filtered vacuum, HEPA filtered air cleaners the entire time, and then even after they're done cleaning, we leave them on for two days, and then we turn them off for 24 hours before we test. That the byproduct of mold remediation should be a white glove clean space with zero odor, zero chemicals, zero residue, no paints, no encapsulants. You don't need to add an antimicrobial paint or anything because if you didn't fix, if you fix the water problem, it's not going to grow back. Right. If you didn't fix the water problem, it'll grow on the antimicrobial paint within six months. Just give it time. Mold always wins. So there's no point in doing that. Plus, you're adding a line item. You're adding expense. Does that all make sense? Yeah, it does. So then in terms of the air, because I understand what you're saying in terms of not using foggers, that makes complete sense in terms of cleaning it and wiping it. And I know you're doing it under negative pressure, but let's just say that someone has, you know, say it's in their basement, right? Or maybe like in a crawl space. And typically for many people, their air conditioners or their heating units are also in those spaces. So then because the mold, even though it wasn't growing in the ducts, let's just say, maybe because there was spores and some of these volatile compounds, could they have gone into other areas, right? Because I know you're doing a negative pressure in that space, but what if the spores got into the ducts or, you know, and then they went upstairs from the basement? How would you address that? Because you're using the HEPA filters, but you're using it in the space where the mold was, not everywhere else. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I, one of the things we, we test for spores, right? I mean, I, I, you know, our got mold test kit is a sports trap test kit. Um, but I must remind people, I'm not in the camp that spores are what make you sick. I use spores as a measure of the, as a way to know more about the problem. Also, spores are a great way to know if the space has been cleaned. Spores are microscopic dust. And I can connect it to a specific origin because mold doesn't grow in the air. It grows on a surface. And so I use the spores as a way to measure you know, the degree of contamination, the degree of a mold problem. So, you know, we test the whole house in most cases. And, you know, the area, you test the, the, the area of concern where mold is, is clearly present and where remediation will occur uh, regardless. And then you test the non-complaint areas where there's nothing visible because contamination can occur beyond that. And that those areas need to be taken into consideration as part of the overall remediation. So that would mean running air purifiers and HEPA vacuuming and wiping down those areas too. In those areas too. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Including duct, you know, duct work needs to be clean. There's a standard for that, the NADCA, N-A-D-C-A, mechanical hygiene system standard. And so, you know, getting your air ducts cleaned by someone who's NADCA certified is, is it always a good thing? But, you know, I, I'm not in the camp that we, we can't be away from sports. Let me give you a fun statistic. Um, there's a great book, by the way, called The Entangled Life. Anybody who's interested in fungi uh, will find that to be amazing. It's written by a guy named Merlin Sheldrake. Beautiful, beautiful book. And he uh, quotes uh, that there are uh, uh, the Kingdom Fungi releases 50 megatons 
of spores into the environment every year. 50 megatons is the equivalent of 500,000 blue whales. Wow. So it is fun, king of fungi is the largest producer of biological particulate on the planet. We are not going to get away from spores. Right. Right. <laughs> so so but the thing is what we what we want to do is make an environment where, which is not conducive to their growth uh, and proliferation indoors. Uh, and so we use testing for spores to determine the extent of the problem, where it needs to be cleaned up, and then also to assess whether or not it has been cleaned up. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So then what about the MVOCs? Because as you mentioned earlier, this is the stuff that can really make people sick, even more so than mycotoxins or um, the spores, as you say. And I'm just playing devil's advocate, I guess, a little bit. But is it possible that let's just say someone had water damage or issues in their basement? It was musty there. But again, the ducts are there, right? Their heating system or their air conditioning system is there. It went through the ducts into the other parts of the house. And then the must, even though the basement's cleaned up, could the musty smell still be in other areas? Well, so the good news about the musty smell is that it's it's airborne, and so as soon as you ventilate, it's gone. If it's not produ- being produced, uh, it will it it does absorb into porous materials. Everybody has can relate to you know the idea of like a musty book, mm-hmm. right? The book may not be moldy, but it's got a musty smell. You know, you look at the book and it looks fine, but it's because the paper will absorb that that odor. Uh, so porous materials will absorb that odor of clothing. That's why people who live in moldy houses sometimes smell musty, you know? Yeah. It'll absorb into their clothing. And so so that musty odor uh, can be, you know, th- that can be washed out of clothes, by the way. Okay. So that's something that isn't going to make you sick then, right? If you wear that clothes or if you read that book because there's no mold on it? Or can it? A lot of, no, a lot of people will react to that and they'll think they're reacting to mycotoxins. Oh. This is the thing. Okay. Is that everyone, by the way, people also think mycotoxins are radioactive or something as if, if they're in the wall, they're going to get you. Mm. Uh, th- these are, you have to have contact. There's a lot of misunderstandings around mycotoxins. Let me also clarify something here. People get sick from mycotoxins, okay? Mycotoxins are, are not to be messed with. I have leaned over to take a sample of, of, of a, a tape lift from a really infested wall. It had black, dense mold growth that was about a quarter of an inch off the wall, furry. Uh, and it was up three or four feet. It was an entire basement. And I went in there in the arrogance of, of, of my early years as a mold assessor, went in there without a respirator. And I leaned over. And I felt, you know, that little bit of blood pressure rise in my face. And as I leaned over, my face, my nose bled out. It just bled out. Like, oh my gosh. And that's one of the symptoms of trichothecene exposure is that it's hemorrhagic. It will break capillaries. And so that's why the whole, the whole story about the Cleveland Clinic and the kids who got sick back in the 90s, uh, they all, there were a bunch of babies came into the Cleveland Clinic after a flood, two weeks after a series of floods in Cleveland. And uh, the babies were limp and bleeding from their, their orifices. And they were, they, obviously, everyone was scared to death. Uh, and the results were kind of inconclusive that people blame toxic mold and CDC said that's ah, probably something else. But I had that experience. So mycotoxins are serious. Mycotoxins are used in chemical weapons. The T2 toxin used between Iran and Iraq was a, was a kissing cousin of the same trichothecene that Sacubatris makes. So it, make no mistake, these are very potent chemical toxins that should not be taken lightly. I'm just saying the vast majority of the illness that is blamed on mycotoxins is incorrect in my experience. So that's the good news. And I think that is good news because mycotoxins, our relationship with them is, is poorly understood. You know, we use mycotoxins to cure disease too. Antibiotics are mycotoxins. And I believe that, that also causes a lot of sensitivities in people who, uh, who have had used 
antibiotics would treat things like Lyme disease and then wonder why they had ended up with a mold sensitivity when they just took gargantuan concentrated doses of mycotoxins to treat their Lyme disease. So these things are all kind of inextricably connected. Um, and so my, my, my whole philosophy is, is that this, the buildings that we live and work in are essentially extensions of our immune system. So in other words, it's an exoskin or an exoskeleton that you live in. And, and I would even argue that the building, it, you have a synergy, you have a symbiotic relationship with your building. It's here. It will protect you as long as you protect it. If you take care of the building, it will take care of you. In fact, the longevity of the building is largely, it, it has a birthday, by the way, and it also may have a death day. And its longevity is determined by how well it's cared for. And when the building gets sick, you get sick. The building heals, you heal. I would argue that that the most important relationship you might have might be the one with the building that you that you uh, that you live in, uh, the one that you take for granted so often, and you think about this inanimate inanimate thing. Um, but in fact, there's a sense of mutualism there that you require each other to survive. So then going back to, and it makes sense what you're saying about mycotoxins, that it's not, it's not produced by all molds, but if it's there, it is an issue. But then with the MVOCs and that sort of musty book or musty clothes, even after the remediation has been done and mold has been removed and cleaned for some of the sensitive people, my canary, so to speak, right, that still react, they read that book and they start to maybe sneeze or feel like they have brain fog or just kind of feel off. Does that mean then that they that book needs to be cleaned or you know potentially thrown out? Yes. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is that moldy materials that are not uh, of great financial or sentimental value should be disposed. If when in doubt, throw it out. Okay. But that's not to say wholesale, right? You don't just go wholesale. Uh, anything that's porous and absorptive, especially if it's an odor or if it's been water damaged or visible mold growth, should just be disposed of. You can clean some things, but the question always is, is it worth it, you know? Right. So speaking about cleaning, and I know this may be a trick question, but is there a good mold kind of cleaner for porous things, right? So obviously you said with countertops and things like that, all you need is just a damp cloth and some soap. But clothing, for example, I mean, do you just wash it in detergent or is there, you know, because you see there's so many different things on the market that are called, you know, mold killer, so to speak. Is there such a thing? Are there good ones? Most of the time, the smell, unless mold has grown on it and, and, and it's hard to make that assessment, oftentimes these things are best removed with dry cleaning uh, or with lawn, but not with typical sort of, you know, perchlorethylene dry cleaning with like a carbon dioxide or with an organic cleaner. Uh, I don't mean organic chemicals. I mean, you know, a healthy dry cleaning. They tend to be uh, very effective uh, at removing odors as, and in some cases, actually I've seen with, you know, expensive uh, materials uh, where it can actually be removed well without much damage. It just depends on the material and, and how, how much time someone's willing to invest in it. But in most cases, a, a good hot uh, wash and a good hot dryer uh, if the mold has not actually grown on the material, will usually uh, remove any of the odor if it's just absorbed from ambient air. And also if there's uh, sort of settled spores and fungal matter just from the ambient air, again, not growing on, that, that can be just washed off. I mean, just in the wash. Now, borax, if you want to, if you want to get, you know, if you want to get fancy with it, but it doesn't really require too much more. Right, right. Because if it has the musty smell, right, then that would mean that it is the VOCs that are on it, or at least that it was near those, right? I would argue that if you wash something and it still has a musty odor, it's contaminated and it's garbage. 
Got it. Okay. Good rule of thumb for sure. Now, when we talk about mycotoxins, and I think it's just so eye-opening what you were explaining about that and how not every mold produces it, but what about testing for mycotoxins in the body? I mean, it's such a popular thing and so many functional medicine practitioners do that. And there's many labs that will look at mycotoxins in someone's urine, which would in turn, in theory, right, show if they've had exposure to a mold, whether it's past or present, and that there could be an issue. And of course, there's different binders and different kinds of things that could be used for that. Um, What is your opinion on that. And if someone has no mycotoxins, I'm assuming it doesn't necessarily mean that they can't have other mold exposure, right? Yeah. So I, I, as you might imagine, I've got kind of a contrasting view on this too. And, and I, I do believe, again, that mycotoxins have a place uh, and, and they are a causal factor in, in some human disease. But uh, in terms of the way this has become sort of an industry around testing and binders and all that stuff, I'm, I'm a big fan of root cause. Most mycotoxin exposure in my estimation, is actually through food. For my own personal health journey, the sol- one of my solutions was a no sugar, no grains diet. If you look at the mycotoxin levels in the grains and the and the and the and the uh, and even in sugar, believe it or not, uh, but in many of our of our imports uh, and and even peanuts and things like that. Uh, you'd be shocked at how high those levels are. Aflatoxin, there's an acceptable amount of aflatoxin in peanut butter, according to the FDA. And, uh, and the best part about aflatoxin is that it's, it's only the most potent chemical carcinogen known to man, aflatoxin B1. There's an acceptable level in peanuts, and that's coming you know, from the same kind of mold that will grow on the sheetrock in your, in your living room. And so, uh, so uh, many times, uh, people are being treated for mycotoxin exposure, uh, and they're being told that their house is the issue. And a lot of people can't find the problem uh, because the problem is in their diet and they're eating uh, a high, highly processed diet comprised of non-foods, primarily non-foods, uh, wheat and, and, you know, and then you exacerbate that by having it be a, a GMO non-food with it's got mycotoxins and glyphosate on top of it, right? So just pile it on. And we wonder why we have these inflammatory conditions. Um, and so, so my suggestion is in terms of root cause is if you want to detox, first stop toxing. <laughs> So that means remove exposure. And so if you have an air quality problem, you can do one of three things. You can either filter the air, you, or actually, you should you can remove the source, uh, which is you know, remediation, uh, and not always possible or practical. You can filter the air, which of course I do recommend. I think air purifiers are a required appliance in every single home. Do you have a favorite? I love Medify Air. Uh, I love IQ Air too. They're a bit too expensive these days. And, and uh, uh, also bulky, and they haven't really changed changed too much. But that's a great all. The Help Pro Plus is a great all around workhorse. Uh, I have them throughout my house. But I also love Medify Air. Uh, they're lightweight and they're they're very inexpensive, but they're powerful, um, and they also look really nice. Um, and uh, and they're quiet and. Uh, and so I'm a big, big fan of, of that company. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on Austin Air uh, or Air Doctor? Because those are two popular ones that people talk about a lot. Do you think those work? Yeah, they're good filters. A true HEPA is the most important thing you're going to look for. Because if it doesn't say true HEPA, it isn't. And what is not what is not true HEPA, that means air actually will bypass the filter. The other component of a really good air filter is that you want to have enough activated carbon in it to remove the VOCs because healthy indoor air is not just uh, low on particles, mold spores and, and combustion byproducts and things like that, but also low on gases and the VOCs, whether they're man-made or not, uh, those can only be removed either through ventilation or through filtration. 
Um, and so the filter needs to be able to capture those. HEPA filters don't do it. You need to have the carbon in there, which actually chemically binds to the, the VOCs. And so that means that you also have to replace those filters pretty regularly. Otherwise, those VOCs will just pass through again. So I, I do like AirDoc. I think any filter is better than no filter, first of all. I don't care if you put a pleated filter on a box fan. <laughs> um, seriously, I mean, that's a very effective way of, of reducing particles to an acceptable level if you have a, a, a small budget. But, but really, if you want to do the best you can for your air, you want to make sure there's a decent amount of carbon in that filter um, so that you can have a more well-rounded perspective. Again, we're, we're testing for these problems. We're looking for spores and VOCs. So when we're filtering, we're also doing the same thing. We're looking to take both of those things down to an acceptable level. Um, the third part, that, that, so that you can you can either do the source removal, you can do the air filtration, or you can dilute. And dilution is a more complicated conversation. That means you, know, you, you wouldn't really open the windows to deal with a mold problem, but you might open the windows to deal with you know, a, an odor. Uh, you might want to ventilate, ventilate a house if you're if that's your only option right now, because you just had you just listened to this podcast and you go, oh my God, I'm living in this musty. You might want to get some fresh air in there, but that's not a sustainable solution. Um, and so ultimately, the most sustainable thing is obviously remediation. And the second most sustainable thing is air filtration. As you can see, there's quite a bit to mold and certainly many misconceptions about it. Sometimes it can be worse than we think, but other times it may actually be not nearly as bad, especially when it comes to mycotoxins. In the next episode, which is going to be episode 118, Jason and I are going to talk about how the body actually deals with mold and the best ways to support it. As you can probably guess, there will be many more myths to bust and practical advice that you can use right away. So please stay tuned. And in the meantime, if Allison sounds like someone you know, or you know anyone that's dealing with mold, please share this episode with them. And please be sure that you subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode. And as always, when it comes to your health issues, please, please don't give up. The answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next time on Health Mystery Solved, where we continue this conversation. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.